Welcome, everybody. My name is Dan Manzanares. I'm the, uh, what am I? I'm the program, uh, community programs coordinator. <laughs> I was going to say my old title, but I got promoted. Um, so we have what looks like 11 readers tonight, which is going to be great. They're going to be reading uh, short pieces, three to four minutes, all genres accepted. Do you guys feel good? Yeah. Lit fest. Okay, so um, without further ado, up first is Caitlin Plant. Caitlin is a first-year member of the Book Project who, is also, who also teaches for the youth program at Lighthouse and tutors students of all ages. She is writing a novel with the working title The Pattern of Waves about Dinah, a young woman who returns to her childhood vacation home on Cape Cod to take care of her dying aunt. The world has been ravaged by climate change and... Chatham? Chatham? Chatham. Chatham. I'm I'm from the West. I don't know these places. Um, And Chatham is drowning. Let's welcome Caitlin. Thank you. Um, Hopefully I won't cough. I have a cold, so excuse me. That night, I gave Auntie Carol a bath. I washed her every five days. I lugged up bucket after bucket of water from the tank. My hands broke and blood and calluses formed. My hands had always been soft. The hand lotion in the bathroom was pointless. Each bucket was boiled on the stove and then taken up to the second floor tub. One bucket was three gallons, each pot was two. One gallon weighs 8.36 pounds. And so the tub took 43 gallons, 14.3 buckets, 21.5 pots, 359 pounds of water. The tub filled slowly. Each pot seemed to fill a smaller space than the last. The water was translucent, translucent, excuse me, so that it looked to be empty even when full, save for the slight distortion of the walls of the white tub. They turned blue and yellow, almost pink in some spaces. I undressed her quietly. Her white dress peeled off of her. The water was often lukewarm by the time she got in, but she never said anything. Instead, a warm smile echoed across her whole body when she stepped in. I wetted a washcloth and with a bar of soap scrubbed into it. The fibers filled with cakes of goat's milk soap. It was made in town by Miss Gould. It sent a musk of sweet cream, mother's milk. I started with her feet and slowly made my way up her body. I was careful to get every nook. She did not like to be unclean, smell of bedclothes and humidity. Her body was soft like the bed she laid in, as if she was sinking into it. Her breasts floated to the top, blue veins showed through the thin skin, dark pink nipples, dying rosebuds. Her white hair was in a bun atop her head, a crown of whipped cream. I pulled it down and it dripped across her face like lace, light and wispy. I loved her hair, long and full. She never cut it. I washed the soap directly into the long curtains of hair and bundled it all on her head once more. Bubbles formed and her eyes closed as I massaged it deep into her roots. I felt the bump, but she did not. To her, I was touching any part of her head, but still I did not linger. It pushed from her flesh as if it wanted to burst out. Blood would have rushed all over the tub as a slump glided from her skull onto the floor, jeering up at me, pulsing with red, blue, black veins and tiny ripples of flesh. Human teeth can be in there, mounds of hair even. Hers would have had a tooth lodged deep inside. It pushed out a white pearl. My my fingers moved far from it, and I made note of where it is. 
I did this every time, but it was like it moved. It wanted me to feel it. Tears rolled down my cheeks. Her eyes were still closed. If they opened, I would have said, it is just the, tu- the water from the tub. I did not feel the tumor. I am not thinking of your death or my death or death in general. Auntie Carol, all the plants are dead. I don't know what to do. Oh, sweetie, it's okay. Everything dies. I am dying. You know? Yes, no one had to say it. I knew it for a while, before the fall. It's something you feel, slipping away slowly, moving to somewhere else. I am almost there. So the drawings? I want to see them simply because I cannot. Those are from over there. Over where? The place we are all going to. What? I am not sure, but we all have to do it one way or another. It is part of who we are. I cried, tears rolling down in waterfalls. Dinah, it is okay. I think it will be all right over there. It wouldn't be. She was just crazy, the tumor. She was seeing nothing. Nothing was there. What about the plants? That is what matters. That is what I wanted to talk about. The plants? The garden. I killed all of it. All of them rotted in the ground. I tore them all up and nothing. We have nothing now. I was yelling. The way I lost my breath startled me as I stopped. I could barely breathe, air escaping me and simultaneously suffocating me. The force of thick air was on my chest, the feeling of something invisible trapping me, caging me. She could not possibly understand that I killed them. I did something, something I couldn't control, something in my fingertips spread out into the dirt and meant to be my end. She didn't know. She saw the ocean out there and thought, beachfront property. Dinah, go into the garage. You will find something to do there, she smiled. The water is cold. Can I get out? She looked up at me like a child. I was meant to be the adult, and I was crying, and I killed everything. She stepped out slowly, and I wrapped the white towel around her. Soft white fibers were on the palms of my hands as I rubbed the towel against her, soaking up all the water. My mom had done this for me once. I walked her to her room and put her in her nightgown, tucked her in. Are you warm enough? Yes, thank you. Good night, sweetie. Love you. Love you, too. A script I had once said to my parents, a script of good nights to to seal it for the night. I said it so if you died in the middle of the night, I could say those were our last words. My last words to my dad were gone from me. I never knew them. They were gone before I even tried to remember them. They never mattered until they did matter. Never let me go, memories. Let me remember everything I ever say. I said I love you in every goodbye so that that could be it. I would always know those last words. I love you, I love you, I love you. Just know that I love you and you matter. And if you somehow slip away in the night not to be seen again, I, so, I think sometimes I am saying it to me, saying it to hear it back, saying it to myself in the night. Just know you are. I go back to the bathroom. Bubbles float up around the water and slowly pop one by one till the water is clear and it drains down into the earth. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Caitlin. All right. Up next is Andrea Ray. Andrea spent over two decades as a climate scientist before deciding that maybe fiction is another way to reach people. She's not giving up her day job, though. She's, she's a first-year participant in the book project, working with Ben Whitmer, and she'll be reading the opening from her novel, Water Year, set in the 2030s in the Denver area. Let's welcome Andrea. Andrea. 
Finn woke up groggy. He heard voices and squinted into the bright lights overhead, faces with masks and gloves. Too bright. He squeezed his eyes shut again. A mask covered his face, but it's not his respirator. The fire, he remembered, must be in the hospital. Shit, how bad am I burned? Two guys wore some sort of suit that covered them up, but not just hospital greens. He heard the water go on, a gentle spray on his legs. It was warm. It felt good. Maybe the burns weren't that bad. But then they weren't just washing. They were scrubbing like steel wool. It's worse than having road rash cleaned after a bike accident. Didn't they say something about painkiller? He heard himself screaming, echoing on the tile. Finn, you've got some burns. We've got to clean the soot and smoke off. Then we'll dress them, okay? Burns. He remembered the heat. Billowing like a thing you could touch, flames all around, embers falling. The new guy, terrified, he and Micah dragging him along as they ran. He reached for his mask. Where's Micah and Paul? The rest of the crew is here. We're taking care of them. And then there's a break before the next bit. Claire pulled off her wide-brimmed hat and wiped the sweat. Maybe the only liquid in her garden today. The scent of dust and vinegary fermenting apples hovered in the evening air, wafting up from where they dropped on the ground from the old tree. It was after sunset, any earlier, and it was too hot to work in the yard. She was loading up the good apples into baskets to store in the cool basement until she made applesauce, apple butter, apple everything each fall. The crop was small this year. A tough season, she thought, as she surveyed the garden. Wilting tomato and squash plants, melons withering, basil gone to seed. There was hardly any water left in the rain barrels. She saddled on a carved stump left there when the tree died in the drought a couple of years ago, picking the leaves from out of a basket of apples. A new smell hit her nostrils. Smoke. Where? She looked up. Fires in the city have been common the last few summers. She's been evacuated before three times in the last ten years. But this year, there was the added worry about Finn's summer job. There's really nothing, there's really nothing left but grass to burn, Mom, he said this spring. And we'll be trained. Don't worry. She scanned the sky above the trees and spotted smoke southwest of town. Is he working today? She hefted the basket onto her hip and headed down the cellar stairs, putting her nose into the basket, hoping the scent of ripe apples would replace the smoke. So. Thank you, Andrea. Okay, up next is Lauren McCain. Lauren is a wildlife conservation advocate who writes about animals and activism. Her genre is personal essay, and the title of her piece is The Difference Between Spray Paint and Fire. Let's welcome Lauren. Concealed in pre-dawn darkness, we wedged ourselves under a cyclone fence, into the grounds of a desolate sawmill, and across the threshold of criminal trespass. Nicole and Abby split off, quietly, to not alert any unexpected security guards. Jen, Lars, and I stayed together as Team Two and moved on to set up for a protest of a big, ill-conceived logging project taking place in the forest nearby. The mill in South Fork, Colorado, is where the dead trees came and where many of the townsfolk worked. Ice crystals clung to my nostril hairs, stinging my sinuses on the inhales. 
Every layer of thermal underwear and fleece I owned provided almost enough warmth for mid-January in the San Juan Mountains, but failed to silence my chattering teeth, betraying my nerves. I regretted not making a bigger sacrifice in comfort for mobility in case things went sideways and we needed to run. We all had written in permanent marker on our forearms the phone number of a defense attorney we could call from jail. The evening before, Jen, Nicole, and I drove down from Boulder, where we were graduate students at the University of Colorado. The gibbous moon, two days past full, lit the crags, chasms, and crests of the snow-dusted mountains in steely blues and various grays. Now before me, gleaming under the mill's few floodlights, stood a monstrous timber processing machine, a scaffold-like skeletal labyrinth of cold yellow steel girders and joists sharp edges and right angles that rose a few stories up and appeared treacherous and unyielding. Our mission? Keeping the machine shut down for as long as possible. Maybe a day, maybe longer. I didn't know what the machine was called or what it did. I hadn't yet contemplated the array of timber industry contraptions. D-limmers, D-barkers, feller bunchers, Heavy excavators, masticators, chippers, stump grinders, skidders, slashers, and saws. Myriad, myriad saws that severed living, respirating trees from the earth and stripped them of their branches and bark. I scanned the dark yard and could just make out neat stacks of equilinear logs, stacks of what was wildlife habitat just a day or so prior, cleaved to conform to a 40-foot standard for an 18-wheel forest to mill long log hauler truck. Infuriating. But hey, who doesn't like the smell of fresh cut wood? I didn't know much about trees then, didn't know the particular tree species lying on the pavement, and who lived in them when they stood alive and upright. Ponderosa pine? It's an industry favorite, often used for patio decks, and also Mexican spotted owl roosting sites. Engelman spruce? A plywood source and preferred denning grounds of the Canada lynx. I didn't know these creatures the way I do now. Such details were irrelevant to me then. Assholes were harming animals, and I had to stop them. <laughs> I was 20-something and pissed and all about justice. I hadn't yet set my limits as to how far I would go to be a friend of the earth. My tactics trajectory was arcing gradually toward risk escalation that started in 1995 with petty trespassing and small-scale vandalism. Lawbreaking offered up a potent high. Thank you, Lauren. All right, up next is Venetia Swanger. Venetia is a professional videographer who sings in an improv group, writing and performing songs on the spot. Her essays and poems embrace a visual approach, which she won't be able to see tonight. So instead, look for the costume change as she reads ebatedate.com, a hybrid essay. Let's welcome Venetia. Hello. This woman, in one year of online dating, was matched with 1,032 men. Of those, less than 1% reached out to her. She reached out to 520 of her matches. Of those men, less than 2% responded. After a months-long period of not being contacted by, 
or hearing back from her matches, and being told by three different men on coffee dates that she looked fat in her pictures, she began reading online tips from women on how to generate dates. Gritting her teeth, she followed the unanimous advice to show some skin. She posted a selfie in a skimpy red party dress. In the next four hours... Twelve men initiated contact. Those twelve men represent half of the total number of online men she had any contact with in that entire year. And 90% of those 12 men were, in fact, fat. (laughs) Possibly frustrated by this experience, she decided to post a similar online profile with a few key modifications... And obviously a new photo. In this version of the woman, in that same one year, she was matched with the identical 1,032 men. Of those, none reached out to her. She reached out to 100% of them. None responded. A few highlights from her profile. Get to know me. Things I'm thankful for. My vibrator. (laughs) How my friends describe me. Intelligent. Angry. (laughs) Creative. Will die alone. (laughs) Three things I can live without. Women's magazines. The word moist. (laughs) My own outrage. What I'm most passionate about. Figuring out how many times you lied in your profile and your real name so I can contact your wife. (laughs) I typically spend my leisure time in anger management courses. And translating what men have said versus what they actually mean before they stop all contact. For example, you are so intriguing. Translation, I find your intelligence intimidating. (laughs) After one coffee date, let's go to Mexico and don't worry, I'm the kind of guy who would totally sleep on the pull-out bed. Translation, I wonder how many condoms I can get through customs. (laughs) Send me your poetry, I'd love to read it. Translation, please include nude photos. (laughs) You have an amazing body. Translation, other women post nude photos of themselves. Why don't you? (laughs) The most important thing I am looking for in a man. When you write in your profile, not looking for a woman who needs saving, you mean it. Four final things about me. One, 
I wish I were attracted to women. <laughs> Two, I'm pretty sure that many men my age no longer find women their own age attractive. Three, I now realize there is a certain freedom in being invisible to men. Everything I do, I do for myself. But I thought I had more time. Four, both women, both versions of the woman are still single. Thank you. Thank you, Venetia. All right. Up next is Petra Perkins. Petra writes fiction, memoir, poetry, essay, humor, and interview. If you'd like her to interview you, she can do it cold, meaning bring a cold bottle of Chardonnay. (laughs) Petra will read a memoir piece published in The Rumpus for a call they did on the topic remorse. Let's welcome Petra. Lloyd was my LTR, my BF, my BFF. He taught me what the F word meant. We'd gone together four years, eighth grade through 11th grade, and were as close as two teens could get without having sex. We not only studied together, we did everything. Our favorites were calculus, church choir, and chemistry lab. Oh, we had chemistry, all right. His protons were bouncing off my neutrons right and left. I was so looking forward to junior prom a couple of weeks away. I'd spent all of my babysitting money on the perfect dress, white Irish lace with a silk ribbon sash. The sales lady said it made me look like an angel. I just hoped it didn't make me look like a nun. Then one week before prom, my mother did something inconceivable. She called Lloyd's father a pissant. This was the 60s, long before the A word was used in impolite society, so pissant was a substitute. I don't know what came over her. I'd never heard this crude term and wasn't sure what it meant, but it sounded quite irredeemable. (laughs) How mortifying was that? Lloyd's father told him to cool it with me for a while. I wailed for three days, developed a dark-eyed, haunted aura, and lost seven pounds of water. One night, I slipped out of my bedroom window and met Lloyd down the street. We sneaked off to someone's basement rock party where we kissed on shag carpets under dim swag lights. On the walk home, I mentioned that my mother felt bad about insulting his father, She didn't. I made that up. (laughs) Lloyd said, what are you talking about? I said, didn't your father tell you? Lloyd had only been told there was some kind of argument. When I repeated the word pissant, he looked shocked, as if he'd just been denied admittance to divinity school because of me. The next day, he canceled our upcoming prom date by breaking up with me. And that's when I felt remorse, or what I thought was remorse. 
I felt remorse for faking someone else's remorse. A boy from band, Doug, an oboe player, (laughs) heard about our breakup and zoomed in and asked me to be his mercy date for prom. Well, he didn't exactly put it like that. I'd never had a date with another guy besides Lloyd. I did not dig Doug. (laughs) Oh, he was nice enough, but plain. I'd known him for years, but never really saw him. He was shy. He waited too long to ask another girl he liked, a low-level percussionist. (laughs) I was a serendipitous catch, for sure. First chair flute, math club vice president, honor roll. He arrived on prom night looking swank and suave in an all-white tux. Doug was my consolation prize, but I didn't feel consoled. I'd applied a ton of makeup on blotchy skin and accentuated my eyes in thick black mascara. When Doug and I slowed dance past Lloyd, I saw him sucking face with a bleached blonde in a tight black dress. With this sudden development, I knew what he'd be doing after the prom. She didn't look like someone who could pull off a quadratic equation. I choked back most of my tears, but some escaped down my cheek. I wanted to make Lloyd jealous, so I nestled tight into my date's shoulder. Doug knew what I was doing, and he played along. When the lights came up, I saw, with horror, pink, brown, black stains and snot (laughs) on the front of his jacket. My makeup job had destroyed Doug's coat. It was irredeemable. He never knew it, but years later, I was really sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe my remorse hasn't peaked yet. I still haven't looked him up on Facebook. <laughs> Thank you, Petra. All right, up next is Mimi Hayes. Mimi is a local comedian and former high school teacher. Today she will be reading an excerpt from her memoir, Breakups and Brain Hemorrhages, How You Can Make It Through Anything, Her Humorous Take on Invasive Head Injuries and Heartbreak. The following excerpt is from a a chapter named Pulling a Presley. Let's welcome Mimi. Hey guys, how you doing? Doing good? Sweet. When asked how we want to kick the bucket, we say, in the arms of Patrick Dempsey. If all doctors looked like McDreamy, I wouldn't have anxiety about hospitals. I'd probably throw myself down a set of stairs daily if I knew there'd be a hottie putting in my IV or changing my newest head wound. Um, But nobody wants to die on a toilet. A few days after my second MRI, the call came from Dr. Crawford's office. I was instructed to meet him to discuss the results in person. This didn't sound good. (laughs) I wondered if, in addition to the blood spot, they'd found a tiny unicorn. (laughs) This was the first MRI we took, he said, pointing to a squishy image on the right. And this is the image we took the other day. Both images had a circular spot to the left of my cerebellum. The left circle was bigger. 
Getting closer to what Dr. C called my brainstem. I'd been informed that this was a big deal. A we hope you don't stop breathing any minute now kind of big deal. I'd like you to come in for surgery, he said. Friday. Hmm, what was I doing Friday? I was probably binge watching How I Met Your Mother. I'd probably be eating a bunch of junk food that I couldn't taste. Yeah, I guess I could squeeze in a brain surgery on Friday. I'll pencil that in. Dr. Crawford explained what would happen. We, he'd make an incision and extract the blood. It sounded ridiculous, like he'd be dumping holy water on my head and performing an exorcism. I got home feeling confused. At 8 p.m., I went to the bathroom to think about what he had said, including the possibility of waking up with a straw coming out of my head. I couldn't come to terms with what it meant. As far as I concerned myself, the straw situation would be hilarious. I tried to chuckle as I sat to take a poop. I started to feel lightheaded. My heartbeat got faster, and then all sounds became muffled. Next would be dark spots surrounding the room and unconsciousness. I was sure of it. This wasn't my first time at the rodeo. The problem was, I was shitting. I was shitting on the toilet and was about to pass out. <laughs> More terrifying was the idea that these could be the last moments that I had on Earth. My brain was already bleeding, so how far of a stretch could it really be that it hit that brainstem? I considered the possibility of a tomorrow that would not arrive. Pretty deep for a Tuesday night shit. I thought about Elvis. He died on a toilet. The king had died taking a shit. Extraordinary people often died in ordinary ways. Death seems so much scarier when it came for you in the mundane, the commonplace and everyday. I couldn't believe it. Someone was going to find my bare ass hanging out, my head bashed in the floor, and my feces everywhere. And who to say my body would stop pooping after I died? What if it just kept coming like a freight train? I'd seen that in movies once. I'd even read that your brain is alive seven whole seconds after you die. I felt embarrassed. I'd be written into the history books as just another toilet dead person. A dirty, dirty death. Time was speeding up now. I could hear my own heart pounding. Elvis wigs and white bejeweled bell bottoms flooded into my brain. I'm going to have unfinished business, I thought. Literally, there's going to be a pile of crap on the floor. Then, bang. I heard my sister's voice asking me if I was okay. My nose was touching the door. No, don't. Don't come in here, okay? Go get mom, I said. I peered around my body to see if I'd made a mess of the floor. I held it in just in time for my body to collapse off the toilet and onto the cold tile. I cleaned myself up and regained composure. I crawled into bed feeling like the luckiest person alive to have survived a deadly encounter with my toilet. Mom tucked the covers around me. If you need anything, let me know, she said. I'm right here. I had to chuckle so I wouldn't burst into tears all over my pillow. Would she always be there? Would I? My brain surgery was just days away. Friday, October 3rd, 2014. I wasn't sure if the date would be etched on a gravestone or time-stamped in an obituary. But whatever happened, this date would change me forever. Thank you. Thank you, Mimi. Okay. 
Up next is Kristen Jordan. Kristen is a local artist who splits her time between writing, quilting, and tap dancing. She is a recovering history teacher who has begun nerding out, researching, and writing historical fiction. This piece, titled Queen Azalea, about a turn-of-the-century woman committed to an insane asylum against her will after the death of her infant daughter. In this scene, Azalea wonders if she is crazy and dreams about the possibilities of escape. Let's welcome Kristen. Five letters, or six if you like. I've even heard it in seven. Crazy, insane, lunatic. I roll these words over and over on my tongue, especially at night when I am awake watching the light from the moon travel in a distorted square across the ceiling and walls of this new frightening back room. Five letters to lock you up forever. Letter one, C. Check into the facility against your will, terrified of being in a place infested with illness of the brain. Letter two, R. Recede into the darkness. Pretend you are not there and lay low until you begin to understand. Letter three, A. Acclimate until you are uncertain if this place is normal or abnormal. Until you are uncertain as to what crazy really means. For everyone in here is now status quo. Letter four, Z. Zealous mission all around you to cure you, to prove charity and compassion are not dead. But who will ever leave this place? Letter five, Y. Youth be gone, for now you are old and dead. My new room looks out on the cemetery. They tell me this place is a haven, security, asylum, and the walls are as much to keep others out as to keep me in, a place where I can be free from sin, free from temptations, and free from the crushing weight of freedom. Here they will shelter me in their loving arms until I recover and cease to be a five-letter word. But oh, would they listen to me? I am no five-letter word. I am a word so long it can have no letter count. I am a word not yet invented, a word that means hope and love and strength all in one. But what would they do with such a word? Where would it reside in the tightly bound rectangle of the dictionary? What does it even start with? Does it have a prefix? What is the root in etymology? Is this an ism, an ist, an ology? Words must be descriptive, prescriptive, defined, static. We shall safely confine them within a dusty scholar's head or a tome of paper. My word only seems crazy when put next to simple, strangled five-letter words. I will disappear. I shall make a list of ways this can be accomplished. Number one, Sally disappeared last week. She told me she was going to do it. The voices in her head told her how she was going to do it. Take your sheet and tear it into strips and tie them together. Find a chair and climb onto it. Tie one end of the strip around a beam and the other around your neck. Kick the chair away. And then she was just not there anymore. Number two. Pretentious Mademoiselle Fermin disappeared last week also. She told everyone she was going to do it. She was cured and her fiancé came and took her away. Money was most certainly involved. Number three. My dinner roll disappeared last night. It did not tell me it was going to do this, and I think we were both taken aback by it. I searched all through dinner, but could not find it. Patsy was most certainly involved. Number four, a very attractive new gardener has disappeared. I will not lie that I looked upon him frequently. We all did, at least those sensible enough. 
I spoke to him once as I was taking the air. He pulled off his cap when I approached and wiped the sweat from his forehead. His hair was brown and curled. His arms were freckled and the contours of his muscles were prominent. He smiled at me as if I were wearing pink. The superintendent shooed, him, uh, shooed me away from Handsome Gardener. His disappearance remains a mystery. Number five, there are rumors that a woman disappeared from here several years ago. The story goes that she hid inside a bag of laundry headed back to the community, missed by a fool not wise enough to tell the difference between the weight of a score of sheets and that of a woman. Witnesses say they saw a black crow fly out of the bag in which she hid and into the very top of the tallest pine tree. Number six, I have read about a certain kind of reptile that can disappear merely by sitting very still. It blends in with its surroundings. I could sit very still in the parlor, up against the fancy wallpaper, until red fleur-de-lis broke out all over my face. My dress would become drab brown. By and by, the shadows outlining my dress and face and shoulders would disappear. Maybe someone would come and hang a picture on my head. Number seven. If I lay still on my bed, curled into a small ball, and closed my eyes, I could disappear. I could stuff cotton into my ears and cover myself with a blanket, and then maybe I could escape these nurses and doctors. I could stop wondering why I am in here, and how long I must remain, and what has become of my little boy. For tonight, for lack of a better plan, I will enact number seven. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, up next is Marsha Walker. Marsha is from Kentucky. She is the author of Big Sandy Stories. She is reading a story called Super Freak. Let's welcome Marsha. I'm going to start kind of right in the middle, so hopefully it makes sense. They called the weekend manager Mr. Mike. He was 27, divorced with one child. Weekdays, he attended community college where he pursued an associate's degree in business administration. Mr. Mike sat at the cluttered desk all the managers shared in an office the size of a closet. He spent most of his time studying. He had been a promising football athlete at one time, playing one year at Forest State College before hurting his knee. In spite of his dumb jokes, brown polyester pants, and cheap tie, there was something vaguely alluring about him. Maybe it was the way his muscles seemed to be bursting out of the sleeves of his stain, uh, mustard-stained white dress shirt or the combination of his five o'clock shadow and dark hair. He stood beside her register now, bumping into her intentionally. She could smell his cologne. Gotta do a reading, sugar. Move over. The restaurant was virtually empty now except for an old man who sat in a corner drinking unlimited coffee refills. The cash register began to beep as it made its calculations. Mr. Mike loosened his tie, and he stepped behind her while he waited for the machine to print a long receipt of the evening sales. Amy could feel him checking out her behind. Don't tell me you're in love with that guy. Yes, she said, turning around. I am. Mr. Mike stared into space and brought a finger to his chin. I thought I was in love once. From behind the grill, Joe asked, did he break your heart? See, Amy, this kind of vulgar sophomoric humor is exactly what you need to avoid. It's obvious what you need is an older, let us say, experienced man to show you things, Mr. Mike said, pausing for effect to guide you. Oh, yeah, Joe mumbled from behind the grill. Guide her. Joe whistled. Hey, Mike, do I have to break down this fryer or what? Mr. Mike ripped the long receipt off the register with a flourish. Break it down, Joe. 
Hell yeah, Joe yelled. He banged a metal spoon against some pots and pans as if he were playing the drums. Joe went to high school with Amy, but he was a Votech student. Their paths rarely crossed except at the Dairy Quick. Joe, sorry boss, Anne, a quiet girl who attended the private Catholic high school, was standing at the other register, her mouth agape, unwilling or unable to participate in their lurid after-hours banter. Anne's father waited for her in the parking lot a full 30 minutes before all the shifts ended. Anne, you can clock out now, Mr. Mike said. Tell your father good night. Mr. Mike grabbed some chocolate chip cookies that had been sitting under the warmer most of the day. Take him these, on the house. Thank you, Mr. Mike. Good night, everyone, she called sweetly. Good night, Anne, dear, Joe called back. But as soon as she was gone, he said, Say, Mr. Mike, I want to hear more about what you're going to show Amy here. Why don't you give us a step-by-step so we can all learn from you? I could use some tips myself. Shauna, the older black girl who worked at the restaurant full-time, emerged from the prep room. Shauna looked at Amy. Don't believe their stories. Neither, neither one of them knows what they're doing. Joe said to Shauna, How do you know what he knows, Shauna? You know how I know, Shauna said. Shut up. You sure know a lot, Shauna, baby, Joe said. Shauna grabbed a broom and stuck the end of it in Joe's butt. Shut up. They started wrestling with the broom and slipped and fell on the greasy floor, screaming and laughing. Mr. Mike charged out of his office with pretend outrage, trying hard not to laugh. Joe got up and dusted himself off. Shauna disappeared. Rumor was John and Joe had had sex in the pantry one night. Someone had found a used condom on the floor. Joe, we're close, Mr. Mike said. Send that gentleman in the dining room home with a meal and some coffee and lock up, please. Sure thing, boss. Joe took the old man a sack of leftover burgers and fries and a large coffee and ushered him outside. Then he cranked up Rick James' super freak on his boombox and played it over and over. Apologize for my lack of singing here. She's a very kinky girl. (laughs) The kind you don't take home to mother. Joe sang and danced along. Shauna hung her head out the back room and said, Hey, Elvis, don't be massing up super freak. You ain't got no soul. Then Shauna came out and danced and sang along with him. She's all right. She's all right. That girl's all right with me. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) then... In the back room, Amy washed and refilled the ketchup bottles. She carried the heavy tray full of clean bottles to the dining room and ran around slamming each bottle on the table. Joe brought the vacuum cleaner to to her. Here you go, Joe said, running around the room, lifting the chairs on the table so Amy could vacuum under. He continued to sing, standing briefly on the table to play air guitar, but quickly jumped down before Mr. Mike caught him. While Amy vacuumed, Joe and Shauna left to smoke a joint in the car. Mr. Mike came around and surveyed their work. Amy finished working behind the counter, cleaning and organizing the shelves and refilling the condiments. Joe and Shauna returned from the parking lot, eyes glassy. We're back, Shauna yelled. Knuckleheads, Mike yelled. Get to work. Hey, super freak, Joe called to Amy. Your boyfriend's here. Thank you, Marsha. Super freaky. <laughs> super freak. Super freak. All right. <clears throat> Up next is Kenneth. Kenneth K. I didn't know I was going to do that tonight. I didn't know. I just. Kenneth K. Northerton is up next. Kenneth lives in Denver, but will soon be back in New York, where he studies creative writing at NYU. He is originally from Pittsburgh, but left at 18 for a career in the Air Force, traveling to South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Germany, the United Kingdom, Turkey, and Iraq. 
Ken will be reading two passages from what he calls a lyric novel, Letters from Wyeth. Let's welcome Kenneth. Thank you. Journal entry. Friday, March 30th, 2017, 2.48 p.m. Summer is coming. Done trying to get to the sun. This saying about going to the sun stuck with me. Calvin Harris is releasing a seasonal song titled Heat Stroke. The email from Fader Magazine said that this single will rival Harris's collaboration with Frank Ocean and Migos. In the fall, I was at an intimate and exclusive Fader party in Williamsburg 2014 with my good friend, DJ. We'd walk down the street and into a costume store for a disguise. A few years before, at the South by Southwest Festival, DJ had gotten into a little run-in on Twitter with the owner of Fader Magazine, Andy Cohn. He tweeted some belligerent comments and called Andy Cohn a quote-unquote fuckboy. That interaction got DJ a lifetime ban from any Fader party and any festival his name and photo posted for the door guys do not admit. He decided on a straw fedora, but put back the fake mustache and zipped up the members-only jacket he'd taken from a coat check the night before. We were in line and almost at the door when DJ said to me, My name is Cristiano, and handed someone else's ID to the security guard. I didn't ask questions. I went in. I drank the free Tito's until I started to see colors, the music beating against my crown, and thought about Miko, how she was doing. I don't remember if we were even even together at that point. I want to say we were, but I can't remember. I stood in the Converse factory, a music venue, on that night, wanting to know everyone around me, the beautiful people with style, culture, and intellect, people who traveled the world like me, but better. They aren't watching me or eavesdropping. They talk to each other. Everyone smells like something out of a fashion magazine. I hear a maton de rage and think, morning storm. They present, but not for a partner, not for someone to make them more. They are music, the deep chills that let you know the notes and the words resonating in your bones. The smiling faces, the sway of our bodies. We are together, and it doesn't matter that we are all just faces as names. Facebook Messenger beeps and I'm snapped out of Brooklyn, out of 2014. It hits me. I remember now. I was with Miko. We were about to have our first big breakup of four months. DJ kept telling me to have a good time, feel the drinks, the music, him that stupid straw fedora. I left early before Mary J. Blige came on as a special guest. I went home and slipped into bed with Miko, my clothes and the smell of smoke still on me. A pattern is here. Things stay unfinished. The pain of a really bad thing can take the goosebumps and the chills. It can take the soul out of your bones, pull the air right from you. It can make everything seem dead, but not the death of breathlessness and nothing. The death you feel right before you know you're going to die, but you're okay with it. Footnote 76, 122410. I really wish I could explain this better. Footnote 77. You are the sun. You were a star, and then I looked at you was blinded by you, the light bending around your persona, intellectual, feminist, open to listening when I needed to be heard. And someone in the middle, I flew to you, I became light, and bent around you in a fight against science and logic, that you would burn out someday, because even sons are mortal and die. What is left is light, which lives forever, if it escapes the void of a frozen sun. 
Look at this and see the contrast, past and present, how she bent you, the light. Footnote, Apollo asteroid 1566, Icarus. <coughs> Footnote 85, when your heart is damaged, it can be repaired with modern medicine and the absence of trauma. Scar tissue develops. If your heart is broken once again, you are damaging scar tissue. Lineage. I come from a long line of brutal matriarchs. My mother is the daughter of Justina Everola Altar, a hard Catholic Filipina whose idea of punishment was to lash you with a whip across the back of your hamstrings while you kneel in coarse sand that she spread on the floor, your body a crucifix, each arm holding a bag of rice. Everola would do this for an hour or more, taking breaks in a rocking chair and drinking a sharp coconut toddy and moving the whip like a snake on the floor, head to hitch to tail. My mother told me stories like this and others with threats of a were monster, the Aswang, searching for bad children two miles into the valley where Everola sent them for water with cans on their heads in the dark of midnight into a cave where the well dripped in the dark. She did this all out of sheer enjoyment if you listen to my mother's rueful tone as she, her voice cracked near the end of syllables. <coughs> At this point in any of her stories about Grandma Everola, a woman I've never met, I say to my mother, tell me again how she died. She gets quiet and her eyes are back and forth like she's seeing it right then. And she tells me that Everola died giving birth to her younger sister, Camila leaving only her father and 11 children to run the coconut and pineapple farm. My mother was one of the younger children, only 12. She stood there as her mother screamed and bled. Eventually, Everola was weak enough that her screams were like whispers, little susurruses to my mother, which she took to mean love. My mother tells me that, yes, she loved her mother and that her, mo her father met a mar and married another woman soon after. Her stepmother was much like Eberola, but younger and less wise, and determined to own the family farm someday. My mother left her village of Lurente Samar the same year her mother died, and she found work in Manila as a maid for a wealthy Chinese couple living in the city. She was 12 years old and left home, her family, and school for life as an adult in the metropolis of the Philippines. She'd lived and worked in Manila until she was 16 when she met my father, an airman stationed at Clark Air Base in Angeles City. Footnote 86. My mother's younger sister, Camelia, passed away years ago. She tells me that she had a troubled heart. Thank you. Thank you, Kenneth. All right, we have two more readers, and I've kept these readers to the end for one reason and one reason only. They didn't send me bios. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, up next we have April Gustafin. April is wonderful and amazing and super special, and she's going to rock this house right now. Let's hear it for April. Sorry about that. <laughs> so this is from uh, a nonfiction, memoirish type thing I'm writing called A Month of Sundays, where I visited 29 different churches and talk about lots of other things that I care about, and we'll see if anyone else does. Um, 
I think I've helped dress four dead Mormon sisters now, five, including my mother. The first was a niece of Diane E., then Sharon L., whom I had known but not well, then Shannon G., who died from cystic fibrosis, then Jan S., who lived down the block from me, and finally, a few days ago, my mother. I remember the first one. Claire was her name, and she was a very large woman at the time. I was working for Cigna Health Plans, somebody shoot me, which was a miserable employment experience, except that my work hours were almost completely flexible, which spoiled me forever, I fear, for any regular type of work. At any rate, on some weekday afternoon, I met up with my church women's group leader and friend, Patty, and a few other sisters at a nearby funeral home where the funeral dude greeted us quietly and took us behind a door into a room where the deceased woman lay on a metal gurney draped with a sheet. Patty started our time together with Claire with a prayer, thanking God that we were able to perform this last sacred service for our sister. That prayer moved and impressed me. I've offered a similar prayer a couple of times myself now. In high school, I was once highly traumatized by a teenage neighbor boy who chased me to my room holding a dead mouse and then crunch crunch shoving it under the door I had slammed against his pursuit so carrying that memory and my general death related squeamishness all demonstrably in my head can't I eat from a bucket of KFC without batting an eye don't I chew on bacon regularly death is all around me I joined with the sisters in what I soon realized was the practical and unromantic work of putting clothes on a naked embalmed woman the holy garments Mormon underwear the slip the dress, the stockings, the shoes, the ceremonial robe, and other symbolic items related to the promises a younger living Claire had made with Heavenly Father in one of his holy temples, somewhere, somewhen. And we struggled somewhat because Claire was a large, overweight, embalmed woman, unable to help us put her arms through the sleeves of the dress, supine on a gurney, where we had to roll her back and forth to get the clothing on both sides of her. Somewhere in the midst of this activity, I lost my awe of the sacredness of our work and the unfamiliarity of being near and touching a dead person, and I became absorbed in the mechanical difficulty of picking her up, of putting the white slip, then the white temple dress on her, of wrapping the sash around her waist, of putting the white knee-high stockings and white shoes on her swollen feet. My mom died the morning of February 28, 2017, at home on hospice care with me and my dad and my brother Gary Jr. My 43-year-old baby brother Glenn was on the phone from Utah, FaceTime style, watching with us. We tried to call my other brother, Gene, too, but he was busy and asked if it was an emergency. I said no, because at the time we just thought we were updating him that mom seemed to have taken a turn for the worse, not realizing that she had taken the final turn of her mortal life. I don't remember my mother's last words. It occurs to me that it's hard to enshrine last words when you're not paying attention to them and can't remember which words were last. I know that on the Monday before the Tuesday that she died, I tried to get her to communicate with me. My mother had suffered from schizophrenia since she was 20 years old, and we had been used to mom's stages of illness, her catatonia, her paranoia, her sometime fractiousness. So that Monday of somnolence and unconsciousness seemed like another phase that she'd entered and from which she would emerge. But instead, she was, as the hospice people put it, actively dying. So when I asked her on Monday if she wanted something to drink, she seemed to fight her way through a long, deep river of inability and spat out with great difficulty just a few sounds, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I gave her some water. Later, I heard someone say that when a person is dying, her body is using every bit of energy just to keep the basic functions going, heartbeat, breath. 
and she doesn't have any energy left for communication, for expression. But the literature assured us that she could hear us, that she could understand what we were saying to her. So I tried to say some things to her, guided by the booklet provided by the hospice people. I talked to her. I don't remember what I said. I do remember that I told her she didn't need to hang around for my sake and that we would be okay. I don't know if I promised her to take care of Dad and Gary. I wish I had, though I will try to tell her now. It's not quite the same, though, of course. I helped address Sharon L. next, another large elderly sister. Then was Shannon G. I had known Shannon since she was about 10 years old. She was 22 when she died. Patty was there at the funeral home on Havana and about 10th Avenue, along with Shannon's mother and her mother's sister. Dressing Shannon was sweeter than dressing anyone else up to that point. She was cold to the touch, having been refrigerated, but other than that, she was soft and pliable and natural feeling, like she was sleeping, not dead. I found out later this was because she hadn't been embalmed. And she was so tiny. She died from cystic fibrosis, which disease had interfered for years with her ability to absorb calories and nutrients from food, so she was tiny to start with. She was beautiful and easy to lift up and dress compared to her 300-pound sisters in the gospel, whom I had previously helped to clothe. So my picture of heaven, like where my mom is right this minute, is not that clear. The Mormon doctrine is that the spirits of the dead are around us on earth, but the spirits are a finer matter than our bodies, and we can't discern them with our physical senses. They can see us, but generally not vice versa. I've been speaking some to my mother since she died, including yesterday, when I helped to dress her in her temple clothes for burial. After we had finished, one of the sisters who had helped me suggested that I should spend some time with Mom alone, and I did. I talked to her. I didn't think that her body had much to do with the communication, unless, as another sister remarked, they probably stay around their body for a while. I asked Mom to figure out the lay of the land in the spirit world with regard to parties and such, so that when I got there, she could help me figure out how to throw some great parties to meet up again with those I loved on earth who had gone before me. I look forward to the day, but at the same time, I can wait for it. Thank you, April. All right, our final reader of the evening is Michael Sindler. Um, I relate to Michael uh, a lot. Um, one of the main reasons is that once I find, found Lighthouse a few years ago, um, I couldn't get enough. And I just became kind of uh, devoted my life professionally and my friendships and my community to this organization. And I met Michael about a year ago. And it seems to me, to me that he's uh, doing the same thing. And I uh, love having this guy around. Let's welcome Michael Sindler. Okay, man. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do, and so after this incredible salon, I figured I had to go political. Um, this is called Blanket Justice. It's a crime to own a blanket when you're sleeping on the street. You can lie on the bare sidewalk, slick with ice and cushioned only with a gray slush of foot-beaten snow, your only clothes becoming soaked then frigid as the temperature both external and internal drop. You can try and catch your visible halting breath which cloud-like blankets in the air in front of your face. You can try and flex muscles and joints that are becoming less and less responsive due to hypothermia, knitting your fingers together as you blow on them to keep them from becoming totally numb. 
But to own a blanket? That's just too much. It's an affront to those who have blankets and beds and homes and property and positions of respect within the community. It's an affront to those whose credit cards and bank accounts show that they're worthy of owning comfortable quilts and warm, soft clothes to protect them, to protect them as they travel from home to car to work to car to home to car to shop and dine to car to home and repeat again to protect them as they walk by sneering at those lazy bums who torn apart in ways they cannot understand the ragged shreds of the woven cloth of lives perhaps also once comfortable as a warm blanket or from the beginning little more than scraps of thin sheeting or nothing more than windblown nuisance and untidy eyesore polluting the streets their tax dollars pay to keep clean that blanket must be ripped away and taken as evidence of the crimes of being homeless, helpless, and hopeless. It will be taken away to a holding center where it will be lost among the hundreds of others piling in a room far warmer, far drier, far more sheltered than the place occupied by the shivering, stranded soul from whom it's been taken. That blanket will not be covered by a natural blanket of frost with its crystalline patterns of decoration, will not gather fresh falling blankets of snow or hard pelting sheets of hail. It will not change its color or its hue, turning blue like the lips and red like the eyes, nose, and cheeks, and pale white like the sallow skin of the hands that once gripped at its fray edges, the weathered face it once shielded from the wind, the aching, tired body it helped to keep alive. What a terrible crime it is to own a blanket. Almost as terrible as the crime of taking one away. And to this latter crime, shame on you, I say. Thank you, Mike. Let's give it up one more time for all of our readers. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.